Let us pray. Lord, help us by your Holy Spirit to hear, receive, and comprehend your word. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. It's an unusual person who has not experienced times of trial in their lives. Uh, for me, as a young man, the death of my fiance shortly before we were due to get married was one such, uh, as was a time when I was repeatedly ill, but no one seemed to know what was the matter, and the months that went by before you knew what was what. You will have your own stories. Many of us, though, know times of trial, anxiety and inability to sleep, being afraid or fearful for someone else or for yourself. Some people describe the sense of impetus, uh, impotence, the inability to change something for the good on behalf of somebody you love as one of the most uh, soul-destroying feelings and emotions that humans have. And to say to somebody, pull yourself up by your own bootlaces, is to mix a metaphor no more able to be done than pulling together a pair of curtains and asking it to do itself. Everyone has times of trial. And the scriptures make clear, and it's clear in the two passages that Stephanie read for us this evening, every follower of Christ has times of trial. If ever anybody became a Christian and thereby thought that they were opting out, copping out, or getting round the vagaries of living in this life, then please let me disabuse you quickly. You're wrong. Being a Christian was never a remedy for escaping times of trial, and it was never promised to be. We sometimes call these times wilderness experiences precisely because that's what it feels like when you're in the middle of one. Not all times of trial come about because of the same reason. And I want this evening to look briefly at three contexts or reasons why we come in our lives to times of trial. First of all, sometimes we enter a time of trial when we do not do or hear what God wants of us or wants us to hear. Sometimes uh, it's disobedience or what uh, somebody once called selective spiritual deafness. The book of Jonah, for example, isn't ex actually about a big fish at all. The reference to big fish or whatever it is is almost incidental to the story of Jonah. It's really about somebody who professes to be a follower of Yahweh, a devout Jew, who then spends the rest of the book sorting out what happens when you say no to God who's asked you to do something. It's a book about obedience and disobedience. The time of trial, which has Jonah going in the opposite direction to where God asked him to go, becoming the object of fear and then rejection by the crew on the boat, being thrown overboard, leaving Jonah when he's spewed up, that lovely phrase in Jonah, on dry land, depressed, angry at God, failing to understand what's happening to him, and finishing up cursing a tree for not giving shade when it's not the time of year when it should have any leaves, tells you all you need to know about self-induced situation-making. Augustine's great and famous prayer about our hearts being restless till they find their rest in thee arises from St. Augustine's own early life where he wrestled like few other accounts of wrestling 
in Christian history with God's will and frantically and sometimes belligerently and repeatedly went his own way and basically said, what are you going to do about that then, God? And therefore his prayer is like all the great prayers of the church. It's a prayer to yourself. Uh, I will not find rest, Augustine, until I find rest in God by becoming at one with God's purposes. It's not that there are no trials and tribulations once you do place yourself inside God's will. It's rather more subtly that the nature of the trials and tribulations that you have become different. They are now not born of disobedience, a refusal to adopt God's will, but they arise now precisely because you are doing God's will. And therefore they're different in kind and different to respond to for someone who wants to be a follower of Jesus. Then there's the second uh, type of time of trial, where we enter a time of trial because something simply happens to us. Often we don't want it to happen. Most times we've got no control over where, whether it happens to us. We can't alter the fact and for all of us, then, the choice quickly becomes not whether or not we're going to live with this time of trial, but rather how are we going to live with this time of trial. Martin Niemöller was like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, two of the German pastors in the uh, Second World War in prison there. Martin Niemöller wrote this, I have no choice about what is happening to me but I have a choice about how I will respond to what is happening to me. Now, the Greek word for trial that we're using here is a word, thripsis. And if you were to try and find a dynamic translation of what thripsis means, it means quite literally being under the thumb. Now, not under the thumb in terms of being, having a hectoring spouse, male or female, but simply that sense that somebody has got something down on top of you and they are just pressing down all the time. So you're constantly responding in flipsis to pressure. In times of trial, all of us have to choose when we're in the pressure of circumstances that we can't alter, how we'll respond to them and particularly how we will be with God in those circumstances. Whether or not what's happening to us is driving us away from God or propelling us into God's keeping and care. Times of trial and trauma and sadness and awfulness are part of what it is to live in this world, which with all its happiness and wonder is a profoundly fallen, broken place. You only have to look at the news at the end or the beginning of every week, but particularly this week, to know that truth. It's a place this world shot through with all the grandeur of God, those glimpses of glory, to use a poet's image. But it's not heaven on earth. It's a place of deep unfairness, a place where bad things happen to good people and people are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Life on earth is simply like that. 
And therefore, it's incredibly different, difficult, not least for people of faith, to live in a world like that and cope with that and make sense of it and live faithfully in it. And some of us here this evening will know that very, very clearly. But however hard it is, we must pray for the strength and the courage to choose to stay near Jesus. Uh, J.C. Ryle, a great uh, evangelical Anglican bishop at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, had a great ministry among particularly young clergy people in the Church of England. It would be clergymen then, wouldn't it? Uh, And one young man came to him and said, I cannot pray. And the great bishop said to him, well, go away and wait until you can pray. He said, I've tried that, it doesn't work. He said, in that case, go away and pray that you may desire to pray. And he kept pushing back, whereby you never put yourself in a position, and this was the spiritual guidance, where if you like, you're failing to create the faintest possibility of a line of communication back to God. Because in those times of extremists and times of trauma, the first thing that sometimes goes, even for faithful people, is the distance between themselves and their ability to either feel or relate to or keep those regular disciplines of prayer open between themselves and God. To choose to throw ourselves into God's care rather than, if you like, like Jonah, to run miles away. And then there's a third kind of time of trial that comes about really because it actually seems to be God's plan. Now, this is not quite the same as saying, for instance, just in a sentence, God gives suffering. Uh, But it is a sense, no doubt in the scriptures, that God seems to put some of his saints and some of his apostles in times of trial and they recognize it as such take for instance this passage from 1 Thessalonians uh, Paul's writing but brothers when we were torn away from you for a short time in person not in thought out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you for we wanted to come to you certainly I Paul did again and again but Satan stopped us For what is our hope, our joy, or our crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? And then this bit. So when we thought we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. And we sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by the trials before us. You know quite well that we were destined for these trials. Paul has this notion, this experiential notion that Stephanie was reading about when he wrote to Corinthians, quite an early book, that to be a Christian and to follow the way of Christ, far from pushing away some kinds of trials, sort of opens your hands and says, I'm right in the middle of them. And to expect that fully. The Greek, if you read that passage in 1 Thessalonians, again, and you know I don't do this Greek thing very often, but the phrase we were destined comes from the same verbs that we now put together to put in place. 
to, to, to state it as it is, to, to make it real. Which is a clear way of saying these trials, these hard times, are placed here by God. They're not, not there by accident. In fact, this is the opposite of chance or happenstance. This is God's doing. We need to remember that trials are not entirely negative. In fact, we're probably still in a period of Christian history where as modern people, we still tend to think of trials as automatically against the will of God until they're proved otherwise. For most of Christian history, certainly from the 4th century through to about the 16th, most Christians Yes, in a very different time of mortality and awful things happening to them more routinely than happens to us, were quite clear that not so much that God sent them, but that this was, if you like, the proving ground of somebody who was faithful. The Pilgrim's Progress, which I often refer to, is essentially a book where you travel uphill in all sorts of ways and manners and moods in order to arrive at the crown which is before you. It's not a stroll downhill with nice signposts and restaurants all the way. Pilgrim's Progress was written with a view of Christianity that these trials are put there by God and that to overcome them with God's strength and resilience is within God's will. Uh, in fact, there may be a sign that they are in the will of God. There's a, a lovely story in John Wesley's journal which has its wonderful high moments, but if anybody who's tried to read through them all knows some of them is sort of almost like a kind of Facebook page, you know, got up, had a good dinner and went to bed early. Uh, there are days like that in John Wesley's journal, and there's an occasion where he, he ruminates uh, one winter's night that no one has thrown any rotten eggs at him for several days, and his comment, wandering in his diary, is, I clearly am not preaching the gospel. For many Christians, this time of trial is almost therefore a part of, of growing up. Times of trial happened for Jesus. That's what that passage in Luke, that hinge of the blessing of being recognized by the Holy Spirit as the Son of God, that point of resonance between two members of the Trinity, and then immediately from this high place on a mountain high experientially high, spiritually high, boom, straight down into the valley. It would have been so easy for the Son of God to say, what on earth is all this about? I wanted to stay there. And the answer would have been, you need to walk through the valley. And though it's a painful place to be, like living with a nail stuck through your soul, it's also therefore an incredibly valuable place because you learn more about yourself. It's a place of growth. It's often the place of the start of a new ministry or a work of the Lord. The same Paul who wrote that passage in 2 Corinthians writes later on in that same book about a thorn in the flesh being given to him. It's another sermon, but we don't quite know what the thorn was for a long time in the 19th century, mainly because it was diagnosed and understood for the first time. Lots of people associated that Paul had epilepsy. 
Uh, it seemed that when epilepsy was finally diagnosed as epilepsy, everybody sort of said, that, that, that's what he'd have. Uh, who knows? But he ends, doesn't he, Paul, in that passage? Thrice I sought the Lord, and then he said to me, not, I will heal you, I will take away all future trials and tribulations from your life, brother. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul lived out the rest of his life, no doubt sometimes hanging on by his fingertips, but that's what was what. The times of trial don't go away, but you don't have to walk through them alone. My grace, my presence is sufficient for you. So if you're going through a time of trial, whether you think it's out of disobedience to the Lord, whether it's happenstance or cruel circumstance, or whether or not you believe that what you're going through and the stresses and the strains and the flipsis are in fact God's rendering of you, God's care for you, that you grow up into the stature of Christ. May you know the presence and the keeping of God, whose grace is sufficient. Amen.